Okay. The title of the message this morning is Marks of a True Christian, and this is part three. Two weeks ago, we looked at what it means to persevere in tribulation, right? This morning, we are going to look at the last part of verse 12 in Romans 12, where Paul communicates to us this ever so present, or I should say ever so prevalent instruction that we not only see throughout the pages of Holy Writ, but we also see modeled in the lives of every saint throughout the history of Christendom, and that is to be devoted to prayer. Naturally, we could spend weeks and weeks on what it means to be devoted to prayer. I'm going to try to do it justice in 40 minutes. So let's start by forgetting for a moment about the saints of old and their example. And for now, let's instead concentrate on Christ and his example. His example regarding devotion to prayer. If you remember a few weeks ago, I said that people backslide in the faith because they neglect three things, three foundational things, prayer, Bible reading, and fellowship with other Christians. The first of those three things is naturally prayer. Prayer was the first thing that Jesus devoted himself to in his day. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 reads, And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. It is paramount, folks, that we begin our day like Christ did with prayer. I'm not going to tell you that your day will always go better if you begin it with prayer because that's not necessarily true. But I will tell you that if you begin your day with prayer, whatever the day and whatever the devil throws at you may be more tolerable to get through having begun your day in prayer. That's the most that I could promise scripturally. There's going to be a day that you're going to be devoted to prayer in the morning and you're going to die that day. Well, it would be great when you think of it in relation to eternity, but in relation to this life, I'm joking, I'm kidding. Okay. Not only do we see Jesus begin his day with prayer, but we also see him in prayer at times throughout the day and in the evening. And remember... Christ is our model. We are to be conformed to his image. In Mark's gospel, again, we read, and after bidding them farewell, that is the 5,000 he just fed, Jesus just fed, he departed to the mountain to pray. 
So we see him going to the lonely place to pray. We see him going to the mountain to pray. We'll see him going to to the wilderness to pray. All synonyms for him getting alone and spending time with the Father in prayer. And when it was evening, Mark continues, chapter 6, the boat was in the midst of the sea. I'm going to read that scripture again because I want you to get it from the very beginning, okay? In Mark's gospel, okay, we read, after bidding them farewell, that's the 5,000 he fed, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land, and that's right before he began to walk on the water, Mark 6, 46 and 47. I can't help but read that and think that that perhaps him spending the entire night in prayer um, may have had something to do with the fact that he was walking on the water. I don't know. I'm only speculating. So Christ's entire ministry was dependent upon his communion with the Father. That's what I want you to see. His entire ministry was dependent upon his communion with the Father. And folks, your entire Christian walk and how well you do it, how well you walk in the Christian faith is largely dependent upon your communion in prayer with that same Heavenly Father. I don't care how busy you are or how many responsibilities you have, you must be in an attitude of prayer throughout your day. You should be conversing with God as you go about your business and carry out your responsibilities. If anybody was busy, it was Jesus. He literally had people pressing up against him all day long. He had to go away to a lonely place to pray. In Luke chapter 5, verse 15, we read, But the news about him was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would sometimes slip away to the wilderness to pray. No, it says he would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Your wilderness could be sitting at your desk in your cubicle. It could be a five-minute restroom break just to read a few verses and pray for a few minutes, just enough to renew your mind and reestablish your connection, your lifeline to the Father, to focus, to allow peace to reign in your hearts, to cast your cares and your anxieties upon him. You could pray on the trolley. You could pray on the bus. You could pray in your car. You could pray while you're walking to your building or around your residential neighborhood. It's not hard to devote yourself to prayer. It's not. But it does take a conscious, planned effort You must make a decision to devote yourself to prayer because it is your lifeblood. Some people literally put more time into thinking about what they're going to make for dinner than they put into prayer. Yet Paul instructs us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. 
And I've heard so many pastors try to make that be something that it isn't or something that it, that it doesn't actually say. Paul means what he says and says what he means. Pray without ceasing. That means to be in a spirit of prayer, conversing with the Lord throughout your day. Jesus uses the parable of the widow and the judge to instruct his disciples that they should always pray and not lose heart. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this view, he says, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. In Matthew chapter 26, Verse 41, Jesus tells us, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I could go on and on and on all day long. Prayer is crucial. Luke tells us in chapter 6, verse 12 of his gospel that it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. No, not the verse I read before. Different verse. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. This is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Christ manifested in human flesh. And he has a need to spend all stinking night in prayer. How much more? And as I alluded to before, the earliest Christians, they made prayer their number one priority. They set an example for us to follow in this regard. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Luke says, these all with one mind, these Christians, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and the Mary, I'm sorry, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in Acts 2, this sounds similar, different verse, Acts 2, 42, Luke says, and they were continually, there's that word again, continually, it's everywhere, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There's those three things. Prayer, the word, fellowship. And we're throwing in there the Lord's table. It's important, though, to point out that this devotion to prayer in our Lord's life and in the lives of these earliest Christians wasn't something New. This was always the tradition of God's people for thousands of years, beginning with the very first Hebrew, the first guy that God called a Hebrew, Abraham. Then the Jews after him, who initially implemented 
three times a day to put aside for prayer. They put aside morning, afternoon, and evening, okay? Then the Christians come along who, in the very first century, thought it wise to carry out this Jewish tradition, and they, these first Christians, prayed at those same times during the day. They saw Christianity as a continuation of Judaism at that time. So they were just doing what they always did, praying morning, afternoon, and evening. They had set times in their, in their day depending, now I'm going to speed up in history a little bit, okay, depending on which creed or confession or Christian denomination or faith tradition they aligned themselves with. And then even later in Christian history, many denominations developed their own written prayers. And although written prayers have always been with us, most of the Psalms are written prayers after all. We have Paul's written prayers right in his epistles. So as I said, although they've always been with us, men began to later tailor their written prayers to fit and highlight the doctrinal differences between them and their Christian counterparts who held to different doctrinal specifics within their own creeds and confessions. Now, I know that's a big run-on sentence, but I think you got it, so I'm not going to read it again. For example, written prayers that were associated with those who espouse Reformation tendencies, Reformed doctrine, okay? Their written prayers contained content about election, about God's providence, and about God's sovereignty. And written Catholic prayers, Roman Catholic prayers, on the other hand, began to reflect Roman Catholic beliefs and distinctions such as the perpetual virginity of Mary, and prayers to the saints, for example. And still today, in 2022, virtually every mainline denomination has written prayers that are largely associated with what they believe. For example, Roman Catholics have, and I, I went over this couple of these one time, probably about four years ago. Most of you probably won't remember, but Roman Catholics have what are called the Liturgy of the Hours. How many of you have ever heard of that? The Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Office, same thing, which are four volumes of leather, thick books, okay, of written prayers and psalms that are prayed daily at different set times of the day by Roman Catholic clergy and lay people alike. Those who follow the liturgy of the hours will pray at the following hours. I'm going to give them to you. You'll see why. 
There's, this is in Latin, by the way, which most everything was at the time these were constructed. Okay, Lauds, L-A-U-D-S, which means early morning. They, they prayed these written prayers. They still do today. Monks do. Monasteries at 3 a.m. Lauds is at 3 a.m. They get up. They pray. Then comes Prime, which is 6 a.m. Then comes Terse, T-E-R-S-E, which is mid-morning prayers at 9 a.m. Then comes Sext, S-E-X-T, midday or noon prayers. They pray at noon. And then comes Nun, N-O-N-E, which is mid-afternoon prayers at 3 p.m. Then comes Vespers, which is the evening prayers at 6 p.m. Then comes Compline, which is night prayers at 9 p.m. Then comes Matins, which is midnight. This is how many times a day these Catholics pray these written prayers, whether they be Jesuits, uh, Capuchin monks, Franciscan monks, Franciscan friars of the renewal, they all get up through the night and through the day they have these set times of prayer for centuries after the Catholics came the Anglicans or the Episcopalians with their book of common prayer. How many of you have heard of the book of common prayer? Okay, Many Anglicans, especially clergy, still pray out of the book of common prayer every day. I've used prayers in the book of common prayer for weddings and for funerals and for hospital visitations. And so do a lot of other pastors. Then come the Lutherans. Can't leave them out. The Lutherans, they follow the Book of Concord, which is a book of creeds, confessions, and prayers. Okay? And additionally, lest you think that the Reformed Christians are left behind, the Reformed Puritan prayers, okay, we find in a book that's very popular today. They actually are selling it in leather now, leather bound, which is the Valley of Vision. You heard the Valley of Vision, okay? And then there's another book of Reformed Prayers that's very popular, which was written or compiled by C.H. Spurgeon. And finally, if that's not enough, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox, Byzantine Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, etc. And they each have their own set of written prayers, both inside and outside their liturgies. Now, why did I spend five minutes on that? Because I simply want you to see how devoted to prayer other Christians have been in the past and today. We may not agree with their doctrines. We may not agree with their creeds and confessions. We have different creeds and confessions, and they would say, well, we don't agree with yours. That's not the point. The point that I'm making is, Christians pray, and Christians see to it that they pray at certain times of the day because it's that important. We must be motivated. We must motivate ourselves to devote, devote ourselves to prayer. That's where the word devotions comes from. Or the concept of devotions. You know, you hear people today, well, I I didn't do my devotions today. 
or I did my devotions today. It simply means that you've taken time, you've set it aside, and you've devoted that time to Bible reading and prayer. That's all that means. And we all need to do it, whether you call it devotions or you call it something else. We all need to do it. Now, I would be doing you a gross misservice if I neglected to tell you about that which, in, in my opinion, is one of the very best books on prayer. I believe that every Christian should have this book in their possession. And that is A.W. Pink's The Ability of God. The Ability of God. That's the newer title. Okay? The older title is Gleanings from Paul. Or Gleanings from the Apostle Paul. Now in this book, Pink shows you the main prayers of the Apostle Paul in the pages of Scripture. The average Christian Joe has no idea, I had no idea, how many prayers of the Apostle Paul are actually in his writings until you read this book. Why don't people pick up on Paul's prayers as they read through his letters and epistles? The answer is simple. It's because Paul's prayers, for the most part, sound nothing like our prayers. They sound nothing like what we're taught to pray in our churches as mainline American evangelical Christians. The book was, was certainly an eye-opener for me personally, but more importantly, the book offers the reader, the Christian, an opportunity to pray Paul's prayers or to literally pray scripture. It's absolutely incredible. You could purchase the book both in print and in ebook formats too. $2.99 on Kindle. There are a legion of free versions online. Most of those free versions, both in EPUB and in PDF format, are under the title of Gleanings from Paul, by the way. I looked them up. So if you type in A.W. Pink, Gleanings from Paul, you're going to get a slew of PDFs and EPUBs that are free for you to download and read this book. And one more thing about it. When you see what Paul prayed or what Paul prayed for and then compare that, to what we typically pray for as 21st century Christianity, you will not only see, as I said a moment ago, a huge difference, but it will revolutionize the way you pray. Now, I can't make that statement without giving you an example, right? I got to give you an example, or you're not going to believe me. So, if you would, turn in your Bibles, please. Ephesians chapter 3. It doesn't matter what translation you have, you'll be able to pick up on what I'm doing. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. I'll give you a minute. Now, beginning in verse 14, I'm going to pray Paul's prayer. I wrote it in such a way, and, and this is what I encourage you to do. Go through Paul's prayers, 
and write them out in such a way that you could pray them. I have them in a notebook. I pray them all the time. Look at verse 14, begin there, okay? Father, we bow our knee before thee and pray that by the riches and glory of your Son, you would grant us strength in our inner being with power through your Spirit. We pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that you would root and ground us in love. I pray that you would give us the power to comprehend what is the breadth, the length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, so that we may be filled with your fullness, and we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. That's Paul's prayer. Does it sound like anything that we are typically taught to pray in American Christianity? Absolutely not. It doesn't. That's how far off we are, is my point. This is how far off we are on Christian prayer. If you want to pray this way, if you want to pray about the things Paul prayed about, read his epistles, mark the prayers, underline them, highlight them, whatever you want to do, write them out, and begin to pray them, and I promise you, it'll change your life. I promise you. Okay. The primary thing that I want you to see is that true Christians everywhere are serious about prayer. And even more importantly, God is very serious about prayer. And he's very serious about your devotion to prayer as evidenced by his word. We need to get serious, folks. Now, regarding the prayer sources I just mentioned, it is truly a matter of personal preference, okay? It's a matter of conscience as to how much any one of you chooses to pray freestyle prayers or written prayers, okay? Personally, I think they're both very effective at different times for different things, and I, I pray both freestyle prayers and, and written prayers. And when I say each have a place, okay, I'm not only referring to the things we went over, but I'm also referring to things like um, the weddings and the funerals and the baby dedications, whereby pastors and lay Christians may want to pray a written prayer, which obviously is more formal and more tailored to these types of things, like weddings and baby dedications and hospital visitations, okay? So they are conducive, both written and, pre and freestyle, to all of these things. I'm just simply throwing tools out at you folks. That's all this is, is tools, tools, because I want you to pray more. I want you to be devoted to prayer. Moving on, I would be amiss if I didn't cover that which can cause failure in prayer. That's the most important thing other than to pray is what, it, what is it that's going to make your prayers effective or ineffective? 
which is going to discourage you from praying. I don't want you to be discouraged from praying. And in order not to be discouraged from praying, your prayers need to be answered sometimes. And the way to get them answered is to not fail in prayer. And the way to fail in prayer is what we're going to talk about now. There are things, excuse me, that will cause us to frustratingly flounder and fizzle out dismally in prayer. What are they? The first thing that will hinder you in prayer is habitual sin and or disobedience in your life. Habitual sin or disobedience. It's going to be a problem for your prayer life. The psalmist says in Psalm 66 verse 18, he says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. The Lord pronounced judgment on Israel for their sin, and he said, quote, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, because of your sin, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen to you. Isaiah 1, 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you are in habitual sin and disobedience, the Lord may not answer your prayers. And sometimes, additionally, we pray with sinful motives. Scripture teaches us in James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And sometimes we, when we pray, we do so while harboring unforgiveness in our heart towards someone which can be another hindrance to answered prayer. Folks, I personally cannot go even two inches off the mark, the beginning mark of prayer, if I'm harboring unforgiveness. God brings it to my mind immediately. Even when I don't know that I'm, that I'm harboring unforgiveness towards somebody, he brings it to my mind the moment that I, I sit down to pray. Matthew chapter 6, can't, can't get any clearer than this. Verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And lastly, sometimes our prayers aren't answered simply because we are not abiding in Christ. You've heard me say this a million times because it's in the church title, okay? Abiding Grace Church. The word abide means to stay and remain. If you're not staying and remaining in Christ, 
a walk with him, a attitude of prayer with him, that your prayers aren't going to get answered. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, not a little bit of fruit, much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. Well, how do we do that, Jesus? If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things have I spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In other words, by obeying our Lord's commandments, we remain in his love. And if we remain in his love, we will automatically produce much fruit and that fruit will bring glory to the Father. And that is what gives us his approval to ask for whatever we wish, and he'll do it for us. If, got to add this caveat, it's according to God's will, of course. 1 John 5, 14, and 15. And by the way, I think it's worth mentioning John's consistency here between his gospel and his first epistle. In 1 John 3, 22, he says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, that is from Christ, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. It's the exact same thing that he just said in John 15. He says it in 1 John 3. So the scriptures are very, very clear. There isn't anything in scripture that suggests that we can just come willy-nilly before the Lord in prayer and expect him to do whatever we want, whenever we want. He's not a genie in the bottle. He's not a spiritual bellhop. We wouldn't be able to approach any earthly king that way. But yet, many of us seem to be conditioned in American Christianity to think that we can approach the God of the universe that way. You hear some of these pastors, so-called pastors in media, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that these are not genuine Christian men. How can, I, how can I make such a bold statement? I make it based on Scripture alone. They talk to God in a way that isn't even close to being biblical. Paul speaks of these people as having no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.18 They have no concept of how terrible God is. How terrible he can be. The fear of the Lord, folks, is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The wisest man in the world said that. Solomon. 
And Solomon also said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the whole duty of man, the whole duty of man is to fear God. Reverentially, respectfully fear God and keep his commandments. These so-called Christians, these wolves in sheep's clothing have no fear of God and neither do they keep God's commandments. This is evidenced plainly by the way they live their lives. Lives of excess, flying around in $60 million private jets, staying in $10,000 a night presidential suites. Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, in the fanciest hotels around the world, they're just suffering for Jesus. One crusade to the next. Hogwash. If these men are Christians, then I'm afraid I can't comprehend the English language because the English Bible that I read and study says that true Christians demonstrate the complete opposite of that type of behavior. And what am I saying? I'm saying, don't be devoted to prayer in any way, shape, or form like these people are devoted to prayer. And as a general rule of thumb, your prayer should be the opposite of what they pray for. They are flippant, arrogant in their prayers to the Lord. Now, you should be confident in your faith, but reverent in your prayers to the Lord, Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. I should say Ephesians 3, 11 through 12, sorry. They claim to know God and all of God's ways, okay? They know God and everything about God, they'll tell you. It's enough for us to know Christ and Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. They claim that God wants to bless them with prosperity and riches. They ignore the words of Christ. <laughs> Matthew 9, 19, 23. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven for the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Mark 4, 19, and through the cross of Christ, the world has become crucified to you and you to the world. Galatians 6, 14. It's a life of sacrifice, this Christian life, not a life of excess. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, says in that beautiful song, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. It was God's saving grace that taught him to fear God and reverence God. It is God's saving grace in our lives that causes us to fall on our face before Almighty God and worship him for who he really is, not who we want him to be. That's a gift from God, Newton says, and he's right. The sinner doesn't know that gift. The unsaved doesn't know that gift. 
They don't know that grace. God is what they make him. He's a figment of their imagination. They surround themselves with teachers that will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. They create a God and sell a God to suit their own fancies. He is certainly not the biblical God. You need to be devoted to prayer, but you had better know who you're praying to. And you had better know his attributes and his character. Ironically, A.W. Pink wrote another book called The Attributes of God, which you should also have in addition to the ability of God. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, beginning in verse 6. And this is God speaking through Isaiah. There is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were part of the camp. Numbers 11, verse 1. Does that sound like a God that you should flippantly demand prosperity and riches from? because of 10 or 12 verses that you've been taught to take out of context and believe in ignorance is yours for the greedy taking by this man on TV who claims to be God's anointed. Habitual sin, disobedience, ignorance about how we are to pray and the misconceptions about who God is and what God expects of us will hinder our prayers. That's all I'm trying to say. Learning about who God is, his word, his attributes, studying how Paul prayed, how the psalmist prayed, and most of all, how Jesus taught us to pray. He gave us the Our Father as a flawless example of what the subject matter of our prayers should be. All of these things will aid you in praying, in devoting yourself to prayer, abiding in Christ, obeying his commandments, producing good fruit, keeping your line of communication open with God. Like I said, it's not hard. It just takes a little bit of effort. This is how we're devoted to prayer. Paul instructs us, instructs us of this in Romans 12, 12, which is our text. Let's pray.